Art, thank you for that. It's good to see you this morning. I want to report to you on behalf of the men who were at the uh, men's retreat, most of whom are still there and are coming back this morning, uh, that we have had a wonderful weekend together, uh, full of rest, refreshment, conversation, study. It was, it was a blessed time, so I'm thankful for that. Got in last night uh, from that, and I'm very grateful for what the Lord has, has provided for us in that. Uh, let me invite you to be opening with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 29. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 29 and go down through verse 34 this morning. I've had some reason to realize, uh, even this last week, it, it popped up for me, uh, how, how long I've been using certain services that I've just gotten accustomed to. Uh, for example, Google Photos is now sending me notifications of momentous things that, things that happened to me five years ago. Uh, remember this from five years ago, and I tap it, and there's a photo that I took. Uh, usually it's of nothing very significant. But sometimes it's momentous. Uh, and it's, it's, it's good when that happens. It feels good. It's encouraging to be reminded of, of those things. Uh, we're, we're opening, and we'll start with verse 29 this morning. What we're going to find there is one of those kinds of things. This is something absolutely momentous that we read. We hear n- nothing less than the first recorded audible declaration of Jesus as our God-given substitute. Now, I venture to say that knowing that things like uh, the conversation between the angel Gabriel and Joseph took place, where Gabriel told Joseph that this baby in utero would save his people from their sins. I mean, some, some profound things were already said of Jesus in the flesh. Uh, but there is no mention to Joseph there of how he's going to do that. In this passage, we have hints of greater specificity, could put it that way, given to us uh, as John the Baptist points a finger at the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this comes amid a passage that's giving us the content of John the Baptist's testimony concerning Jesus. Up until now, he has shown his general awareness of his purpose, the reason that he's been sent, He knows that the Lord is coming soon and that he's preparing the way for him. He knows these things. But now we hear this morning what John the Baptist says concerning Jesus of Nazareth when he comes to recognize him as the one who was to come after him, the one whose way he was preparing. Before we go any further, let's read the passage together. I'll read from the English Standard Version. John 1, verses 29 to 34. And if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, 
and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The content of John's statements here is pretty straightforward for this morning. There are two points of emphasis in particular that we need to notice, we need to think about and understand better than we did when we came in this morning. That's my hope. Let me share these with you, and you tell me just how significant are these two points, these two concepts, to the whole of your Christian faith. How important are these? Number one, Jesus as the source of substitutionary atonement. Number two, Jesus as the source of the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is significant, what we have before us this morning. First, Jesus as the source of substitutionary atonement. Uh, The first emphasis we find right away in verse 29. Look again with me there. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle John has here John the Baptist point his finger at Jesus. (laughs) Behold, look. We find this command, behold. I mean, just get this. John's gospel will use that command more than all of the other New Testament writers combined. We find that word in this gospel more than all the rest added up together. Do you see how well this fits the purpose that we've been hearing about for which John has written this gospel? John is presenting signs of Jesus' identity. We've already seen it many times. He wrote, John chapter 20, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he sees to it that as he tells the story, his readers are going to hear this command over and over again. Behold, behold, behold. See what God is showing you. See the signs that I am laying out that God has given, attesting to who Jesus Christ is. We do well to remember for ourselves and for those that we will talk to about Jesus, that when we talk about him, We're talking about someone that has been proven to be who he said he was over and over again with indisputable signs from God himself. This is no blind faith that we are calling people to as they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has attested to him mightily over and over again as he walked the earth. And John's gospel makes this abundantly clear. John the Baptist tells the crowd, he tells his disciples to behold Jesus. Now, how is he going to introduce him to the world? That's what he's doing here. Jesus now shows up on the scene. He is walking among men and no one knows who he is. No one understands who he is. And now John will point his finger and as everyone turns their neck to look, John is going to introduce him. John's going to frame the mindset of the people as they turn to see who he's pointing to. How will he introduce him? He has so many choices at his disposal. 
as to how he could do this. We saw that last week. He had many choices at his disposal as to how he would describe himself. Remember the priests and Levites came to him asking, tell us who you are. We need something to tell to those who sent us. And he had a lot of choices. And the way he chose to describe himself framed and fit his purpose. I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. So how will he choose to introduce Jesus and to frame him in the minds of those that he's talking to? This is the prophetic role that John is playing here. He was serving as a prophet when he warned that a great one was coming after him. And now he's playing a decidedly prophetic role as he introduces him. And the designation that he chooses to give to Jesus is one that, in the form that he gives it, is brand new. There is no record of anyone talking about the Lamb of God in exactly these ways prior to John the Baptist doing it here. Now, I want us to think for a few minutes about what this does, that he chooses a phrase like this that is not one of the many similar token phrases he could have pulled from the Old Testament. I would suggest to you this morning there's something very powerful that he accomplishes in his more general statement here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I believe what he, what he accomplishes with this is that he manages to gather a great number of Old Testament pictures in the minds of his hearers. Not all of which were describing the exact same reality or the same angle on that reality. And he, he gathers them all together and lets the minds of his hearers go back to a number of these pictures all at the same time. Let me show you what I mean by this. Let's take a walk for a few minutes through the Old Testament here. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's just take a walk for a few minutes. Would you go back to Genesis chapter 22? You can find verse 6. I'll read verses 6 to 8. As you're getting closer and closer to Genesis 22, Abraham is starting to come onto the pages there. If he is, you're moving in the right direction. <laughs> Genesis 22, starting in verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they, they went, both of them, together. The lamb The, the lamb that Isaac is searching for, the lamb that he, uh, the lamb that he will need, and the lamb that Abraham is trusting to the Lord. Uh, go to Exodus chapter twelve. I'll read verses one to six, and I'll also read verses twelve and thirteen, just to round out the picture here. 
We're hearing instructions from the Lord as to uh, sacrifice in worship. Exodus 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, what's happening is so momentous that they are completely changing their own calendar for their people. This is now the first month of your year from here on. So significant is what's going on. Verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will... And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the goods of the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, the, the word used here for lamb is not the same word as what John will use in the Gospel of John. You can tell that because here in Exodus, they can take this lamb from the sheep or the goats, right? So this is a bit of a broader word in reference to a young of these animals. Technically, a, sh a lamb is a baby sheep, right? Here you can take it from the lamb or the, the sheep or the goats. I do think, though, that if we... Um, I think that we're working ourselves a bit too hard if we try to force that level of specificity on John's intentions. I think it's very reasonable to, to, to hear him point out the Lamb of God and to think, among other places, to think of this passage that we've just read. I would contend here that he's painting a picture by sweeping in a broad way, and he's doing it on purpose. Because these Old Testament pictures God has given on purpose, they're leading his people to a certain place of epiphany, of understanding, when Jesus Christ shows up on the scene. No, it's not technically the same word that's used there. It is the same word, however, if this makes you feel better, that's used in Exodus 29, 38, when he is describing the daily, twice-a-day sacrifices they were to make on the altar, morning and night, the sacrifice of a lamb. That was the exact same word. If we're willing to think more broadly, though, we can also bring in the picture of Leviticus 16, of the scapegoat. The sins of the people are placed upon this young animal as Aaron puts his hands on its head, and that animal who has had their sins placed upon it is then cast outside the camp. This is a place of condemnation. It's a place where Jesus died on the cross, cast outside the camp of God's people into the wilderness. And what about the Lamb of Isaiah 53? Do turn here. I've heard you turning to those places, and then I disappoint you because we don't read from them. Well, you can turn to Isaiah 53. 
A passage, interestingly, that uses both of the animal words we've been seeing, the actual technical lamb word and the more general word that can mean a lamb or it can mean a baby sheep. Isaiah uses both of those words and he uses them synonymously. I think that's helpful as well. Turn to verse 6 of Isaiah 53. We'll read verse 6 to get into this, but I want to point out in verse 7 in particular. Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, there's the word from Exodus 12, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep, there's the word that Jesus uses, that John uses, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Lamb of Genesis 22, Passover lamb of Exodus 12, scapegoat substitute of Leviticus 16, lamb substitute of Isaiah 53. This is not a new picture. God has been painting this picture of meek animal sacrifice as substitute for sin for a long time and in a great number of different ways, almost as if this was going to be something very significant in his plans. And John doesn't put any of the typical supplemental words on it. He doesn't say Passover lamb. He doesn't say sacrificial lamb. He just says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you think it was difficult for these Jews who are hearing him as he, as he turns their attention to Jesus? Do you think it's difficult for them to gather that he was staking a huge prophetic statement into the ground in this moment? And huge it is, my friends. Because we're finding in Christ what the Old Testament has always shown us to be our single greatest need. We as creatures, we as human beings have a lot of needs, but our need as sinners outweighs them all. I want to share with you something that J.C. Ryle has written to this end, uh, and I'll see if I can get through this. I'm having a rough time this morning. I don't know why. A lack of sleep from the, the men's retreat or something. Please ignore this. Um, Ryle is going to list five functions that Christ serves for us, each of which I think you'll agree are utterly precious to us as his people. But he's going to set all of those underneath this one that we see in verse 19. Listen to what Ryle wrote. This passage contains a verse which, <coughs> uh, which ought to be printed in great letters in the memory of every reader of the Bible. Let us take heed 
that in all our thoughts of Christ, we first think of him as John the Baptist here represents him. Let us serve him faithfully as our master. Let us obey him loyally as our king. Let us study his teaching as our prophet. Let us walk diligently after him as our example. Let us look anxiously for him as our coming redeemer of body as well as soul. But above all, let us prize him as our sacrifice and rest our whole weight on his death as an atonement for sin. Let his blood be more precious in our eyes every year that we live. Whatever else we glory in about Christ, let us glory above all things in his cross. This is the cornerstone. This is the citadel. This is the root of true Christian theology. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. All the world of sinful human beings can find forgiveness of sins in this one. There is no pocket of this world of rebellion that will be excluded from this offer of forgiveness that Christ will give. This is an all that is comprehensive in the way that it is intended. It's an all in the way that we always use the word all, all the time. All without distinction, not all without exception. That's very easy for us to understand. And verses 11 and 12 has made that very clear. There will be a great number who will not come to this light. They will not be given the right to be called children of God. But to those who do believe in his name, he gives this right. And that right is withheld from no group of people, no ethnicity, no nationality. No, there are no human distinctions that would exclude some from this forgiveness that is in Christ. He takes away the sins of all the world. Verse 30 is a near verbatim repetition of what we saw a few weeks ago in verse 15, but with one notable exception. Look at verse 30. Do you notice? He says, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. We can pass over that statement fairly quickly if we're not careful. Do you hear? Oh, this is profound what he does here. In a single sentence, how he affirms the true humanity of Christ as well as affirming the true deity of Christ and his eternality. Christ Jesus is a man. Just let that hang for a moment. He is no mere man, certainly, but he is true man. And I, I do think that's a statement that has benefit to us to hear, spoken aloud from time to time, maybe like a vitamin, taking a, a, a weekly vitamin, something like this. If Jesus is not a man, he cannot represent us. He cannot stand and die in our place. He cannot redeem us. All the way back in the 4th century, Gregory of Nazianzus very famously said, For that which Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. But this man, who is younger than John the Baptist, you remember, they are cousins. Their moms spoke when John the Baptist's mother was pregnant with him. 
right? Elizabeth was pregnant before Mary was. Jesus is younger than John the Baptist. But this man who is younger than John the Baptist has existed long before him. John says, he ranks before me because he was before me. John goes on in verse 31 explaining that when God revealed the coming of the Lamb of God to him, he did not tell him what this man would look like. He simply told John the Baptist that when he began his ministry of baptism with water, that the Lamb would make himself known. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Now in saying that, we are shifting from the emphasis on Jesus as the Lamb of God and moving into the second emphasis we need to notice, which is going to turn out to be a a legitimate way to depict Jesus' entire ministry. And it's now the crux of what John the Baptist is revealing to the crowd. The principal identifier in terms of uh, John's recognition of Jesus. Uh, This is Jesus as the source and gift of Uh, the source of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. Uh, Let's read verses 32 to 34 in their entirety. And then we'll notice a number of things here. Verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to, to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. What do we learn here from what John says? There are two things in particular. First, John the Baptist did not recognize Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah until when? Until he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him after his baptism. You see it in verses 33 and 34. Now we learn here something about the way all of this transpired for John the Baptist. He had been told by God beforehand that when he began baptizing with water, the Christ would come. I can't imagine, knowing that he knew that, I can't imagine how excited and attentive John the Baptist must have been as he engaged in his Ministry of water baptism. You ever thought about that? I mean, he is passionately calling the people to repentance. He knows what he's been called to do. He's thankful and pleased to see repentance, to see preparation. But he knows all the time that at some point here, the one (laughs) is going to present himself. That's exciting. That's exciting. I wonder if that was a distraction to him. He wouldn't know which one this was until he witnessed the Holy Spirit descend upon him. And I'll tell you what, this sheds some fascinating light on the account that we have in Matthew's Gospel. You don't have to turn there. For the sake of time, let me just re-remind you um, of what we learn in the Gospel of Matthew about these events. Here's what Matthew tells us. Jesus comes to John to be baptized. John says to him, I have need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Jesus insists. John baptizes him. 
And then the Spirit descends upon Jesus, and a voice calls out from heaven. You remember this account? Now, it can be easy to read into John's wor- uh, to, to John the Baptist's words there, as recounted in Matthew, when he says, Jesus, you, I need to be baptized by you. It can be easy to read into those words and to assume that he is hesitant because he knows this is the Christ he's speaking to. But that can't be right, can it? Because he doesn't know that. He doesn't recognize that until after the baptism has happened. So it seems clear that John, pre-baptism, is simply saying to Jesus, Jesus, I don't know if anyone's told you, this is a baptism of repentance of sins. You are far more righteous than I am. If anyone needs to be baptizing anyone here, you need to be baptizing me. Either he knew Jesus personally beforehand, which he very well could have known him. Our text says, I did not know him. That means I did not recognize him to be the Messiah. He may have known him. They're cousins. They're first cousins. Um, If they didn't know each other directly, they didn't live in the same place, families travel to see each other. But if they happened to never travel, family members talk with each other. And I imagine that he's heard some stories about this cousin, Jesus, from his parents as he grew up. Do you think sinless Jesus grows to adulthood and doesn't get some stories told about him by his mother? What is it like for John the Baptist to grow up with a sinlessly perfect first cousin? Do you think that he has any illusions as to Jesus' superiority of righteousness compared to him? It's not a hard one in the mind of John the Baptist. I should be baptized as demonstration of repentance by you, Jesus. And Jesus insists upon this. It is proper to fulfill all righteousness, Christ says. And he baptizes. And he comes up out of the water. And here comes the Holy Spirit descending like a dove coming to rest and remaining upon him. Here is the sign that God told John the Baptist to watch for. And John the Baptist says, oh, now I get it. (laughs) There he is. This is the Christ. That explains so much about my childhood. So we learn here from John the Baptist just how this recognition took place. The second thing that's especially emphasized is that the Holy Spirit remained upon Jesus. That's very important. It's because the Holy Spirit remains with Jesus that Jesus will then baptize with the Holy Spirit. I'm I'm thankful about some things about our time. We're in a time right now in terms of things that are being written and taught about. Um, We're in a time in which this relationship between Jesus' ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit is receiving an increasing amount of attention. That's very helpful. It's good. This is an area with a lot of confusion. And yet it's extremely important in terms of our Christology, our doctrine of Jesus Christ, how we understand him. I would make two quick comments here. First, as the second person of the Trinity... The second person of the Trinity has never been without the Holy Spirit. 
They operate inseparable from, from one another, the three persons of the Godhead. So we're not hearing here, as the Holy Spirit descends and comes to rest upon the God-man, Jesus Christ. We're not hearing here described for us something about the eternal relations of the imminent Trinity. That is not what we're hearing. What we're hearing about is the redemptive historical event that equips our human federal head, Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to rest upon him, and he is full of the Spirit, operating, empowered by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, fed by the Spirit in all of his earthly ministry. Let me share with you a couple of things. Michael Horton wrote this. He said, even as he set aside the glory owing to his deity, Jesus was already receiving endowments upon his humanity in order to enrich us all. Furthermore, Jesus exercised these gifts and increasingly won greater blessings by his obedience. He increased in wisdom, understanding, counsel, and the fear of the Lord, the very characteristics that would identify the Spirit-endowed Messiah, according to Isaiah 11, 2, and 3. Sinclair Ferguson says something about uh, the state of this understanding for the church today. He says, this aspect of the Spirit's ministry has suffered considerable neglect in the history of theology, despite noteworthy exceptions. Abraham Kuyper was right when he wrote that the church has never sufficiently confessed the influence the Holy Spirit exerted upon the work of Christ. I think we'll see it as we go through this gospel, though. If we know to look for it, we will see the significance of the work of the Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. He came and he rested upon Jesus. We'll see especially as well the significance of the Spirit of God upon us and Christ's ministry to us. Because what will happen is the Spirit will not be so commonly present in the first half of this gospel, only in certain key places. After chapter 12, when Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his departure, the Holy Spirit is going to be all over the place as Jesus tells us of how he will continue to lead and shepherd and guide his people even after he has gone. Now finally then, we need to understand that as we hear about this one who is full of the Spirit, this one who will baptize, verse 34 says, with the Holy Spirit, we need to recognize that we're hearing about resurrection blessings. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. When is that going to happen? When does Jesus baptize his people with the Holy Spirit? This happens after he has been crucified and died and been raised and ascended into heaven. This is the gift that he gives to his people. Acts 1.5, for John baptized with water. This is Jesus speaking. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is what begins at the day of Pentecost. Ephesians 1.14 calls the Holy Spirit the pledge, the down payment on our inheritance. The inheritance promised in the Old Covenant, typologically, was life in the promised land. The inheritance promised in the New Covenant is life. Not life in the land, life in the promised land. That is, verse 12, the inheritance of Christ himself, 
by virtue of adoption into the family of God. And when Christ pours out the Spirit upon us in conversion, the new life that is in Jesus Christ is ours. It is ours in Him. It's no wonder that the mention of the Holy Spirit explodes in the second half of this book as Christ prepares His disciples for what is to come. Now, as we move toward closing this morning, I would zoom us out a bit and just ask about the entire passage. What do we see here this morning? In verses 29 to 34, what have we seen? Here's what we've seen. God the Father has provided for sinners like you and me a perfect spotless lamb who came willingly to lay down his life and die in order to remove your sin from you, quote, as far as the east is from the west. We are such an inverted and backward society today in so many ways, aren't we? We are taught to live with no guilt for things that we ought to be ashamed of. And yet do we not live amid an epidemic of seemingly endless waves of guilt placed upon us. Guilt that has no hope of being lifted from us. We're told to askew many kinds of guilt as unhealthy and inappropriate, and yet that there is some guilt that there is no hope to ever escape from. My friends, this is not the Christian way of things. Is there failure in your past such that you walk around with the weight of guilt? Every single day. What is the answer to those to those days upon days. My friends, the answer is verse 29 here. That guilt, I don't know what that is guilt for. It may well be justified and fitting. We are sinful beings. We are guilty creatures. And yet remember this morning that God has done something about it. The Lamb of God has atoned for the guilt of sinful man. If we but believe in his name, if we cling to the cross, if we cling to Jesus as our righteousness, God has done something about your guilt. Jesus did what was required. And he accomplished this being empowered fully by the Holy Spirit. And in his victory, he has turned and given gifts to his adopted brothers and sisters. Do you credit this morning the peace of your forgiveness, the confidence of your faith, the empowerment of your gifts and abilities? Do you credit those this morning to the fact that through Jesus Christ you have been given the very Holy Spirit of God himself to live and work in and through you? My friend, every moment of our lives will be lived in the midst of a story. We're living characters in a story. It's a story that is not about you. It is about Jesus. And yet in that story about Jesus, if you have come to know him, or rather, Paul says, to be known by him, 
Oh, how much he has made of you. We can sense John the Baptist's excitement here. And by God's grace, we can see the countless reasons that we have to share that excitement. I mean, with all of our lives. I mean, this very day. May God grant us increasingly eyes to see, in the past tense, what he has done, finished, over, what he has done for us. And may we glorify him and show our gratitude to him by living in light of the finished work of our Savior. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, help us to rejoice in the fact that our spirit baptism has meant that in our lives, your name may now be hallowed. In our lives, in our community, your kingdom is coming to this earth. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill your people with a proper sense of hope and excitement and even anticipation at what you are doing in us. And what an honor it is that you call us to serve you. You call us to represent you as your children in our time. Be our guide and our protector as we walk before you. And keep our eyes fixed on the cross. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God has fed us again this morning with his word. He is incredibly gracious to us. Let's respond to that gift together this morning uh, in song. I'd invite you to stand with me as we do so.
Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come, into thy glorious gain of thy cross, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of her sorrows into thy bond, out of thy storms and into thy calm, out of distress into jubilant song, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of unrest and arrogant pride, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into thy blessed will to abide, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of myself to dwell in thy love, out of despair into raptures above, Upward forever on wings like a dove, Jesus, I come to Thee. Out of the fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come, into the joy and light of thy home, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of the depths of ruin untold, into the peace of the sheltering fold, ever thy glorious face to behold, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of the depths of ruin untold, into the peace of the sheltering fold, ever thy glorious face to behold, Jesus, I come to thee. be dismissed this morning with the words of Romans 15 verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are dismissed. Go in his peace.